Welcome to the Vroxel podcast. I'm your host, Farouk Bello. And in this podcast episode, we cover a range of different topics about nutrition. But one of the things we focus on is actually how do you build muscle mass? How do you build your weight, increase your weight in an effective way where you're not sacrificing other things like your agility, your speed, and you're still living a healthy lifestyle? This is actually inspired by one of our listeners who asked me the question a few a few weeks ago. And I thought, you know what, who better to ask than someone who I think knows a lot about nutrition, who is involved in the Canada basketball nutrition program, all the way from the 13-year-old kids, all the way up to the Olympic athletes. Now, this is someone who has worked in performance nutrition for a while now, and I think he knows a little bit, one or two things about what he's saying. But without wasting your time anymore, I present to you Dr. Mark Bubbs. So welcome to the Rookshell Podcast. Uh, today's episode is a very interesting episode as we've been following the theme of looking into how nutrition and physical activity play a role in pretty much everyday people as well as athletes and everyone else alike, health enthusiasts. Today we have Dr. Bubbs, who is a sports doctor nutritionist, and I'll let him introduce himself so I don't butcher his uh, pr- proper titles. Rick, appreciate you having me on, bud. Yeah, I work in performance nutrition, uh, work with Canada basketball and then Olympic professional athletes on one end, and then I work with general population, helping people, you know, improve their blood sugars, lose some weight, support their heart health. And so, you know, that whole spectrum from, uh, from elite athlete to general population, and there's a lot of common themes across both groups. So really, really great to be able to uh, see everyone in the population. So, and before we hop into the... Uh... The real meat of it with the questions. I remember you just said something about uh, Canada basketball. Can you tell the people a bit about that? What will you do for Canada basketball? Yeah, so with Canada basketball, I work as the performance nutrition lead. And so it's for a whole uh, men's side of the organization. So from our 13-year-olds when they first get identified all the way up to our Olympic team. Ah. And, you know, for me growing up, I played basketball. as was my sport. Um, and in Toronto, this is before we even had the Raptors. So it was pretty cool to not only see that now in Toronto, there's more kids playing basketball than even ice hockey in Toronto, which is kind of crazy. If you think about Canada, you always think about ice hockey. So it's, it's been great to see that sort of progression and great to be a part of uh, part of it with Canada basketball. Uh, you know, if you know, I play basketball, I play uh, in my union, I played all through. I love basketball. It's pretty much, it's pretty much in my blood at this point now. So that's awesome. great to hear that you are in the field as well. All right. So let's get into the uh, topics that we want to talk about. So now we're staying on a bit of athletes and nutrition wise one big question i've actually got got this question from a friend of mine he asked how do you increase your weight weight gain whilst maintaining agility and keeping because there's always i think there's a general myth that if you start building more muscle mass or more weight you will automatically start losing speed agility and everything it's like a sacrifice yeah i mean that's a common one that still persists and i think um you know, we always think if we gain mass, then it's going to slow us down or impact, you know, things like acceleration, et cetera. And I think, you know, to start with, you want to address the training side. I think too often, at least traditionally, people have adopted more bodybuilding style workouts where they're 
lifting heavier weights and moving them more slowly. And so from a neurological standpoint, they're training themselves to go more slowly. And so from the training program that they be following, you got to make sure that you're following a program that will support, you know, the physical demands of whatever sport that you're into. So that side's got to be taken care of with respect to nutrition and gaining weight. I mean, we want to gain muscle if you're an athlete, um, depending on the sport, if it's a contact sport, then you might want to just gain size as well. So you're going to have some body fat along with that. You know, if you're a rugby player, you play on the offensive defensive line in, in American football, those types of, of positions. Um, but in terms of pure muscle gain, I mean, you can only gain, a, if you're gaining two pounds of muscle a month, you're doing really well. And so all the other weight that's coming on is from you know, glycogen stores, water, um, body fat. And so this is where we do have to watch if someone's gaining, you know, we hear all these stories about someone's gained eight pounds in a week. Well, we got to make sure we're gaining the right kind of weight. And so tracking your weight weekly helps. Um, but if you do gain too much body fat, then you could argue that it would be, you know, would hamper your acceleration, would hamper things like speed, and of course, potentially increase risk for injury depending on your sport. Okay. And uh, talking about that weight gain and uh, weight gain particularly is because one thing I very much, I've seen this, I saw this uh, little thing, I can't remember where I saw it, it was that like if you gain, if obviously people when you said a week, a week time and they feel like they get kg. And then some of it is amassed with like water. Is there a time frame to actually know? Because I know if you're talking about muscle strength, it's normally six weeks before. Uh, that's why I've been taught. It's six, it takes about six weeks if you see true muscle strength. And what about weight gain to see it true without it being masked as, you know, body weight as, you, as water and, or as glycogen, et cetera, and et cetera. So you actually know it's the true weight you're building. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. And it's one where, you know, most people, even athletes aren't going to want to be going into a lab to be doing those kind of invasive tests. And so by simply taking some objective metrics, like your body weight and average of body weight for the week, as well as some subjective metrics, like how you look, mm -hmm. right, the leanness of the individual, that's going to be a good general way to see over the weeks how you're gaining. So if you're trying to add mass, we do want you to be getting heavier over the week. So if it's right. been three weeks, and you've still got the same average weight, then you're going to need to increase caloric intake. Um, and so that can come from fats or carbohydrates, uh, protein as well. Although typically protein is the first thing that we, we focus on and we sort of set that. We can talk about that in a minute if you like. Um, yeah. but that would be something to then think about. So the hydration piece, um, we just don't want to get too carried away with, you know, people who lose weight get too carried away with when they, the scale comes down, when it's, it, it could be lying to them, right? It could be just yeah. water coming yeah. out. Or you see even nowadays with, with kind of fasting, people love it because they lose weight. Well, you know, your bowel contents, not to get too graphic, but your bowel contents can weigh three to five to six pounds. And so wow. if you don't eat anything for 24 hours, you're just losing all the contents of your bowels. And of course, your weight plummets by three or four or five pounds. And people think this is tremendous weight loss. But obviously, it's not the kind of weight we're trying to lose, right? As soon as you start eating again, that weight's going to come back on. And so this is where on a weight loss side of things, yeah. folks trying to stay away from a lot of the fad, you know, unfortunately the fitness industry has done a poor job of, of convincing people that in 30 days you should be able to transform your body when really if someone's losing, you know, again, a pound or two a week, so four to six to eight pounds in a month, that's fantastic. And so that, you know, the expectation that people have around weight loss is not what's really in the evidence-based research. And that sets people up for a really tough time, down the road because they're expecting to have this real rapid transformation ah okay now we're i think that was actually very good one now we're on that one uh so 
my take is that because I know a lot of people who do fasting and different types of fasting. I actually had a talk, I had a talk with uh, someone else who was in nutrition a week ago. We were talking about the rise of the different diets of the, and I personally, I'm not, um, I don't, I don't promote a lot of diets because of two things primarily. One is I don't know enough about diets for me to be saying, oh, this diet is better than this diet or this diet is better. And also I think for me is the biggest one is caloric uh, deficit if you're losing weight or caloric surplus if you're losing weight. But how does it, again, I don't know much. So if you're talking about fasting, what is uh, what are your views apart from that on, on fasting, intermittent fasting and things like that? Well, you touched on a few good things there. I mean, the first one is to understand the principles, right? Is that all the diets work by the same rules. Yeah. And so you can pick whatever diet you want and there's pros and cons to all the diets, but it is nice to know that you're not necessarily getting any, any special um, effects from a specific diet. So all the rules are the same for all the different strategies. And so then you could choose, right? They're all like tools, tools in the yeah. toolbox. So, you know, do we want to intermittent fast? Do we want to do low fat or keto or everything in between? And where people tend to get stuck is they, they just follow a, a template, which is nice when you get started. But then if that doesn't work, then they just try a different diet and a different diet. And they never really take the time to assess why they're hitting these roadblocks. And so, you know, I'll give you an example, intermittent fasting, yeah. um, which, you know, technically is, is eating normally five days of the week and then two days eating very minimally. Yeah. Um, Time-restricted eating is what a lot of people think of when they talk about intermittent fasting and that's sort yeah. of that idea of, of eating at your first meal at 10 or 11 and then stopping eating at six or seven o'clock. And so you're shrinking the window in the day at which you consume food. Um, and those are both great strategies for for losing weight. I mean, ultimately they they work because they help to reduce caloric intake, right? If I if I make you eat, if you normally eat for eighteen hours a day, and I I say you can only eat for ten hours a day, mm-hmm. you know, just by the mere fact that we've shrunk the amount of time in the day that you can eat, we're going to naturally get a caloric reduction in the short term. Now, like anything else, people tend to get to hit plateaus. So in the longer term, it's normal for things to balance out and. You know, and that's not a bad thing. It just means that that's a time to when you have to reinvestigate your diet and see, uh, you know, where things are rather than say, well, I tried this type of diet. Now I'm done with it. I'm going to go do something else because then you're always working at a very superficial level, right? You're not really getting into, into detail, into the detail. And the details are really the habits, right? The habits are what people, we struggle to change those and, and no amount of switching diets is going to change some of the bad habits that we all have that impair our ability to, to maintain a healthy weight. Uh, yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, it's, it's actually it's sticking to it. And uh, you're right, 30 days. I don't know much as you said, 30 days. And then you say it's not working in 30 days because you've been sold that 30 days is that magic number. If something doesn't happen, you then switch again, try another diet 30 days. And then it just keeps on, keeps on the vicious cycle. And because we've talked on uh, losing weight, the big one is uh, for a good amount of people, gaining weight is actually another thing that people tend to struggle with. Even I myself, I'll be honest, I... Uh, my, I was, I lost about five kg when I was trying to gain five kg. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get myself a bit, a bit bigger for like basketball, but then I ended up losing a significant amount of weight, and I had to reevaluate a bit and think to myself why. And I realized I, I changed my lifestyle a bit. I started running more, a lot more. I wasn't actually going gym as much as I used to, and I think I started eat. I had to definitely have started eating less. So people trying to gain weight, do they still follow that same concept of caloric surplus instead of the deficit for uh, building weight? Yeah, I mean, ultimately to gain weight, you've got, you've got to be in an excess. And so the first thing 
want to do when we're trying to gain weight with, let's say, an athlete is to try to set the protein intake. Mm. And so achieve a certain amount of protein intake throughout the day. You know, when we look at amounts, uh, the sweet spot seems to be about 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of protein. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the work by uh, Dr. Rob Morton and Stu Phillips at McMaster University. And that's a pretty nice place to be. So 1.6 grams per kilo per day, spread that over the day. And that's a great place to start on protein. But where people fall short is that the calories are the biggest signal that will trigger this, this growth, right? Mm. And so we get a little bit too focused on protein, right? <laughs> if, if people are struggling to gain weight, they can just increase the protein. Well, that's not going to help you at that point. You need to increase the caloric intake. And so certain individuals need more than others. And it might mean that an extra four or 500 calories a day you might need to, to eat. And mm-hmm. so this is where when you see professional athletes who gain a significant amount of size in a short amount of time, they've often got you know professional chefs working with them or team chefs, and they'll be eating six, seven, or eight meals a day. And so that's where it's just tough for the person who has a real job and everything else to be doing that much cooking. Um, but ultimately, that's what you want to do. You want to consume, you know, if you can increase meal frequency, that'll tend to increase your caloric intake. And then also some foods are more calorically dense. And this is where it gets really confusing for folks because so many people are trying to lose weight that if we tell somebody else to consume, you know, fruit juice or to consume more sugars in their diet, you know, that would cause them concern. But for the person who needs more fuel on board, you need to find a way to get it in in a really easily palatable way because you know, if you, broccoli is great for you, but if you keep eating loads of broccoli, you're just going to get full and you can't consume enough fuel to actually get any bigger. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because I always, I always, when I used to, when I used to, when I used to play basketball, I used to, basketball, I used to think, oh, I want to get, I want these guys get big or they have some, but I have to realize that they have pro chefs and everything. So it's scaling it back to what's realistic to you. But another thing I was thinking about is, because I am, because I've watched a few documentaries. I've watched. I've done a bit of. I've done a lot of research. And mm. one of the things I've mainly heard is not focusing on how much, in a sense, or not not in a sense of mouth, but also looking at the quality of the of the food you're eating in terms of like where you're getting from. Because I can imagine you can easily get a lot of calories from fast food, like sh- sugars, sweets, and all these style of things, and a lot of rice. And so, how do you ration that out to say? Avoid because I don't. I don't personally. I don't sense it to excluding maybe carbs off the plates uh, completely. I think there's a room for everything, but that's just me as an amateur talking. Well, I mean, with any of these discussions, Farouk, we always have to figure out who we're talking about. Yeah. Right. What What's the context? Is this somebody who's you know 22 year old male female athlete who's trying to gain a certain amount of weight, or a 40 year old desk worker who's 20 or 30 pounds overweight? Because the context drives everything, and this is what makes nutrition hard. Is because it's like tools in a toolbox. And as soon as you change the context, instead of a hammer, I need a screwdriver or I need something else. And so then people, it's difficult to follow because it's people say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said that that was bad. And now in this context, it's, and so it's the classic example is just what you mentioned. When we're trying to gain size, if someone's struggling to, we are less concerned about the quote unquote quality of the food. Right? And we still want to have the majority of, of quality, but if the you know you can imagine it like a fireplace if the fire is really hot the logs are going to burn up regardless of the quality and so we need to get enough fuel on board and that's a really important thing but it's difficult to understand because two-thirds of the population are overweight or obese we're struggling with pre-diabetes and diabetes so for all of those folks yeah 
we want the, the latter of what you mentioned, which is the idea of we want more quality in the food because the more real food you eat, caloric intake comes down and therefore it's easier to lose weight. And you know, when we look at the UK, we look at Canada, the US, 50% of everything we buy is ultra processed food. So we're, we're hooked on calorically dense, nutrient poor food. Now, if you're an athlete, it's not the end of the world because you're doing so much activity. But for the rest of us, it's, it's too much fuel and it causes a lot of health conditions. And you know, if you work in, in physiotherapy and movement, then this starts to impact the joints, right? The higher your blood sugar 100%. levels, the joints don't move as well. They're going to be more inflamed. It's almost uh, you know, stickier. Uh, and the tissues are going to get impacted and, and it all it's all connected. And so that's where, again, figure your context of where you're at. You know, are you an athlete trying to gain size or are you an individual trying to improve your health? And, and the diet, you know, advice is going to change. Yeah. And I think you said something that I, I resonated to immediately was um, when you start eating a lot more, quote unquote, real food and whole foods and natural foods, those those caloric densities are not high because I myself, I eat a primarily plant-based diet and i noticed that to try and gain weight on a plant-based diet myself because of the way i'm eating is not it's, it's a bit harder than if i was not eating a plant-based diet where most because most of my things i try and cook as much as possible or they're natural vegetables and plant-based generally plant-based substances and those are i can imagine have lower caloric uh, they're not as, they're not as calorically dense as others so that's where you make yeah sure. i mean if you, if you eat more real food it tends to help although you know if you're trying to gain weight, then things that contain more, let's, if we talk carbohydrates, more carbohydrates per cup, let's say. So things like rice and pasta is going to provide more carbohydrate than even white potatoes or sweet potatoes. Okay. Um, and so those are strategies that you can go for. And the, the nice part with a plant-based diet is that you can get a significant amount of carbohydrate with the meals. If you look at you know, a meal that contains rice and, and beans, um, you know, already we got a good dose of, of carbohydrate. And so this is where for that individual who's trying to gain size on a plant-based diet, it's that idea of, of feeling full now because you're going to typically have a lot more fiber in a plant-based diet, which is great for overall health. Yeah. Um, but again, if we're trying to increase your meal frequency, we need you to eat more frequently than if you're full all the time, then it's tricky. And again, uh, context is everything, but, but that's one, it's, you know, you can play around with that things like, smoothies and juices are great because you're getting just more caloric intake in a, in a liquid, right? So for, especially for an athlete, after you train, after a basketball game, you know, we have our professional players and elite players, you know, they're having a drink that has a lot of carbohydrates and protein in it that they drink because mm -hmm. they're thirsty. And then an hour after that, they're hungry again for dinner. And so you've got this opportunity to get a lot of calories in as well as, as protein, um, which is really important to, to be able to recover. And then for those who are trying to gain size as well. Ah, and I can imagine that that does make a lot of sense. Trying to get as much food as you can, uh, just generally keep trying to keep eating and eating as possible. It can be a bit tricky. So finding that balance, I imagine, is the uh, is the is the tricky part. But once you find that balance, it makes it a lot more easier. Yeah, it's all about habits. I mean, once people get used to it, and and typically when you have an actual chef preparing the food for someone who's trying to get bigger, and you give them a sample day of how much to eat the first thing their eyes pop out because they just immediately know like this is way more food than I normally eat. Right. And so automatically, even from a simple heuristic or simple rule, they can get the sense of like, okay, this is how much we need to now eat if we want to get. Um, and so it's just being exposed to it. That's a big thing. And then developing those habits again for the athlete who's trying to gain mass, lots of meal frequency 
And then for the client who's trying to stay leaner and just improve their health, we're actually trying to get them to reduce meal frequency. So you can see how things shift depending on depending on the goals. I can imagine so. And while we're while we're still on the topic of diets, um, this one is a bit of a funny one, but I wanted to get your take on because I know there are loads of diets. You go pat paleo, keto. Actually, I want to ask you about keto because I know a lot of people who are actually on the keto diet. And I think yep. What is something that is important that they should know that probably they're not getting told when you just listen? Because I think I don't think a lot of people go into depth when you pick a diet. And I think that's something very personalized, as you said. Context is important. And if you go, you want to pick a diet like that, that's restrictive. What do you need to know? Well, I think the first thing is always to start out. I mean, there's so much arguing about nutrition on Twitter, even amongst experts, that it's it's you know even the general public starts to block out all the noise, right? And so the first thing, if, you, if you've started the diet, I mean, good on you, you're into nutrition, you're starting something out, that's terrific, right? That's what we want to start with. Um, now, any diet's going to have potential limitations and the benefits of a keto diet for a lot of people is that they tend to increase their protein intake. They tend to reduce dramatically their processed food intake because most processed foods have carbohydrates in them. And so if we eliminate all of those, then the processed food uh, foods go way down. Although now we see more companies producing processed foods that are more keto based. So you've got to watch, uh, that'll come back to bite you in a few years, but so that's a good thing. Um, now in terms of, you know, things to watch out for, people tend to get a nice weight loss initially on a keto diet mm -hmm. and then they plateau and, and typically they plateau because they're just simply eating right. There's too much energy. And so they're eating too much fat. And even if those are really healthy sources, uh, you can eat too many avocados or you can have too many egg yolks or you can have too much butter or, or whatnot. And so you need to reduce, right? And so, and this is that idea of, again, like, you know, you get those easy wins when you first start an approach, but at some point, no matter what diet you pick, there's going to be a little bit of detective work and a little bit of hard work to figure out what you need to do. Um, but once you do it, if you can develop the habits then after that of how you need to switch your diet, you're able to maintain that success. But that would be a common stumbling block is the person who's done had done well on a keto diet is typically at some point they're going to need to reduce the fat intake. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's about, so, so you can't eat as much fat as you want, even though you hear even some medical doctors say, just go for it eat as much fat as you want. You can lose weight. Well, yeah. Fully. But to a certain point, fully, as you said, I'm sure imagine nutrition is something that everyone, even in physiotherapy, I go into physiotherapy to the, the arguments almost every time regarding something because there'll be a lot of studies that say, oh, it's good, and a lot of studies will say it's bad. And then people would, I think it also comes down to a bit of your personal beliefs. To be honest, as a practitioner, that's all you can really do. Is you can really only go off what you think is right. Well, that's the idea. I mean, even when we practice evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice, I mean, that, that still only means the evidence-based is only a third of the equation, right? You want to take what's in the evidence, of course, to inform what you do as a physio or strength and conditioning or nutrition. But we also need the other thirds are know your clinical experience so that the individual's clinical experience and working with it and then the final third which everybody seems to forget is the patient right what are their beliefs what do they buy into right because if they don't buy into it you know you're not going to get it let's go if it's an acute injury i mean if someone has an acute injury and they need physio you don't just it's not as or, or a medical intervention that's acute that's less less relevant but when it's a chronic condition i mean the buy-in and belief is huge right uh, and so those three components is, is what we need to be able to help people in the long run. And for nutrition, it's tricky because that third component, people are getting tugged in different directions, right? Like your, your mom or your brother, or your sister has an opinion and your teacher has an opinion and your strength coach. And every, so everyone's chiming in. It's difficult for people to follow, um, you know, Everyone something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I could imagine. So <laughs> nutrition to straight out the gate is already a difficult one. But if we're talking in terms of, so, because I'm a big believer that your body, I never forget one of my uh, people I know, he told me that your body doesn't forget what you eat. What you eat now significantly matters in the future. And there's something I put in my head a lot of the time is that long-term effects. You may not see if you eat, I don't, for lack of a better word, if you eat like crap, uh, short term and you're eating and you're not seeing those symptoms you're not really seeing anything in the long term it will it may come back and bite you most of the time so what are your thoughts on the long-term effects because i know there are there are long-term effects but long-term effects of poor nutrition poor health poor feeding yeah i mean you see it all the time when athletes especially young athletes or if you're a young active person i mean when you're younger you just get away with more right you've got a wider you've got wider uh, buffer right uh, and so you can be consuming a lot of sugars and a lot of processed food and fast food and your, your blood sugar control will still stay pretty good and your triglycerides will stay pretty low because you're active and exercising. Um, but it's more to do with the fact that the person's on the same diet as they get older versus what they ate when they're 20, influencing them when they're 30 or 40. Hmm. It's more to do with if you have the same habit when you're 30, especially when you're past 40, hmm. now all of a sudden you don't deal with glucose nearly as well. So that same slurpy or you know, Coca-Cola that you had before, now your blood glucose response is much more exaggerated. So we're going to have peaks and valleys. You're going to feel fatigued and tired. You're going to have more cravings. And so it just becomes more exposed. And so basically as you get older, the the window starts to, the buffer gets smaller. Um, but the best thing is if the more active you are, it helps to widen that buffer as well. The more muscle you have on, it helps yeah. to improve that as well. So those are all factors that are key, right? As a, as a physio, somebody who works in movement, you know, if you can keep people moving, and keep muscle on people, I mean, you're going to do really well regardless of the nutrition approach that you pick. Mm. And that's actually a good one because that's something I, I think based off even physio is that some things are inevitable in terms of old ages and older, getting older is inevitable. But I think depending on where you are at, so as you said, if you have good strength, if you had good balance, if you've been developing these things from a young age, from your 20s, your 30s, by the time you're 40s and your body naturally starts to plateau or naturally starts to go down a bit and you, that deterioration in a quote-unquote, and it's not me sounding ageist or anything, <laughs> so I was ageist, Easy, but yeah. that deterioration, it, it can be slowed down or it can even be slowed down negligibly or at a much slower rate. So you said if you build... Uh, I mean, absolutely. This is where nutrition really shines, right? I mean, you see what athletes are doing now in their late 30s, guys like... Uh, Roger Federer, we have basketball players like Grant Hill played until they're 39 or Steve Nash until they're 40. Ice hockey players played until they're 40. This was unheard of a generation ago. When I was growing up, when you were over 30 as an athlete, it was close to the end. Um, And so that's nutrition playing a really big role. Um, Things like sleep as well, and of course, some of the therapies and treatments. But definitely, I mean, we see as an average, after 40, we start losing muscle mass and other things. But we could definitely, I mean, from 40 to 60, you can have a really long window there of maintaining and even improving. You know, I've got clients who can deadlift more at 60 than they did at 40. Um, and so this is where, you know, our bodies are plastic, our brains are plastic. The, the inputs that we give, we're going to get those responses back. And so if you're not moving and you're eating poorly, well, that's, you know, you're going to get that back out and that's going to how you feel mentally. And if, if, you, if you are active and you can lift a few heavy things now and again, and put some good food in, then you, you, you know, you're going to feel it, your joints, your mindset, mindset. Uh, energy levels, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be, it's going to really pay off on the long, on the long term wise. And the choices, I think the choices you make now and the choices you carry across that long period of time really does make that difference. 
Sure. And as a physio, I mean, if you're treating clients who are in their 40s or 50s, even in their 30s, you know, if their diets are poor, it's going to be harder for you to fix, to help them, you know, to, to rehabilitate them. And so this is where, you know, it's great that this is a, an area of interest for you. Because, yeah, if, if you improve their diet a little bit, even when you're 40, 50, 60, 70, now all of a sudden things get better faster, you know, which is nice if you're a, if you're a manual therapist, physio, et cetera. Yeah, I agree exactly. And one of the things, if you, if anyone listening to this, or one thing I also want to talk to you about was when you look at, because I have this in my head, very ingratiated and very stuck in my head of holistic health, is basically mm-hmm. incorporating. Oh my last one, <laughs> incorporating the many pillars of health into, in the sense of nutrition, physical fitness. Because if someone comes to me and I'm not able to just give, them, if you ask me for basic health advice, health or food advice, or is this bad to eat? Is if I can give you either, if I can do two things, either one, refer to someone who knows a lot more than me as yourself, or give you a little bit of a basic tip, basic tidbits that you can still say, okay, that's, that's knowledgeable. And if you feel you still need more, you can carry on and going. And I think often, even myself, you forget to look at the, oh, the whole five pillars of health, which are, what's it called? I think it's mental, physical, and et cetera, and et cetera, about how that can play a role. Because I can imagine if you're having... I don't know, you correct me, if someone comes in and they're not eating well or they're generally unwell and you're looking only into their feeding, it could go a lot faster if you also thought about, oh, how active are you or things like that and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, the, a big thing with nutrition is building rapport. And so, you know, even the model we have with nutrition that's still around in terms of a clinical model of somebody just going in to see a nutritionist once a month or once every few months is a pretty poor model, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at you know, my backgrounds in strength and conditioning before we got into medicine and, and nutrition, um, yourself as a physio, when you see clients more frequently, you know, when I was a trainer and I saw the same client three times a week, every week for months and months and months, you build a lot quicker rapport. Now, all of a sudden, it's much easier to start to layer in nutrition changes that you'd like to see. Um, and so that's a big component of, so if you're a therapist or a practitioner listening in, it, it is, you know, as much as we need individualization with nutrition, the fundamentals that are common across all of us are still two thirds of the whole story, and maybe even 80% of the whole story, right? We're not, there's a great paper, so personalized nutrition, what makes you so special, right? Like we'd like to think that we're all snowflakes and there is individuality, but there's a lot more common themes that we need, the big rocks, right? The fundamentals, yeah. the same thing in movement or in physiotherapy that people need to do before they get to the smaller buckets or the smaller rocks, which is the personalization. And I think sometimes we overemphasize personalization when someone doesn't even have the fundamentals, right? They want to do a certain lift when they can't even do a proper squat yet. You know, it's like, wait a minute, let's, let's get this first and then we can go there because if we don't have that, then it's never going to, you know, we're never going to get that benefit we're looking for. 100%. 100%. It's the basic, basic building blocks and then you go up from there. You, you can't start off at the top of it with the extremes and anything in particular. And as you, as you touched on a bit, lifestyle, a bit of lifestyle changes. I think, I think lifestyle is, tends to be a word that can either get misused or used, it can be used for a different context. When someone talks about lifestyle, the first thing they think of is, oh, are you doing my lifestyle? Maybe you're doing a lifestyle blog or something. But I think mm-hmm. of, when I say lifestyle, it's lifestyle changes and if we're talking about food and feeding nutrition, what are those little, little things that if you're trying to aim for, obviously, the quote-unquote, the optimal health or optimal nutrition plan where you're eating good and your body feels good, what are those little changes that someone can add into their daily routine to get those benefits? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because we're always trying to nudge people towards the right behaviors. And, you know, even sometimes using the word optimal, I mean, there's a cost to optimization. And most of us, you know, when we're busy and whatnot, optimal is kind of a long way away. So sometimes that can even, you know, dissuade some people because they're like, man, I'm so far from optimal. <laughs> um, but a nice little, a small thing that you can do, what you're alluding to, obviously, is being able to make some small changes to get yeah. some bigger dividends, bigger payouts in terms of health and wellness. You know, a very easy one is to just stop snacking in the mid-morning, right, between breakfast and lunch, right? If you're someone who's looking for overall health and you're looking to, you know, control blood glucose levels, even somebody who's lean, who's got 10% body fat, has got 30,000 calories of energy on their body, right? They could run from here to Istanbul, from London to Istanbul uh, without any fuel. And so it begs the question, why are we so hungry between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. sitting at our desk we're not even moving and so when we talk about behaviors and habits and becoming accustomed to something you know we've just most of us have programmed in this idea that we want a snack or the brain's expecting a snack um, or the breakfast that we're choosing to eat is is creates a really a rush of energy and then the blood sugars come down and we become hypoglycemic and so now all of a sudden you're at your desk and it's like oh man you know i need a coffee i need a sugar i need something something. and so this is where, you know, it's, it's you know, coffee and tea are, are contain caffeine, they're natural appetite suppressants. They also contain polyphenols, so they're a tremendous source of antioxidants. And so that's an easy win, you know. Cut out the snacking. It might be tough for a day or two, but by the end of the first week, you'll be amazed at how you can go from breakfast to lunch. And now we've set a behavior. If that's what you do for six months, for the rest of the year, for the next five years, you know, you've just cut out two, 300 calories a day which is going to be a big win at the end of a month and a year and and going forward. Right. So that's one that now, if you're an athlete, it's a different story, but for the general population, that's a pretty good, uh, even if you're an active person, that's a pretty good suggestion. Yeah. That one is a very, is a very interesting one because snacking is something I've fought myself. It was not, it was not easy to cut out a lot of snacking because snacking regularly, you know, you never tend to, when you even go to, when you buy and go grocery shopping snacks, is a whole segment of things you have to get and you know yeah. you're used to buying your thing. So I think if you can fight that urge, it's the same thing with me when I started my diet and started, I stopped drinking uh, early cow's milk. At first it was weird, but then after a week or two, you don't even notice it and your brain already is like, well, I guess that's it now and forget yeah, about it. Yeah, you get used to the new, the new thing in the diet or the new behavior, right? Exactly. Um, so that's one thing you can do if you're starting, if you're thinking of uh, starting to cut out all these things. And how much of a role, a quick, quick one, is the snacking play in weight gain? I can imagine it's significant, but how significant? Well, I mean, it's really interesting. If you go back to before the 1970s, I mean, the percentage of household spending outside of the home, so on things like snacks and even meals, that was very minimal, right? Most people, my parents' generation, I mean, they ate all the meals in the home. Um, and then in the 70s and 80s, snacking became, you know, let's have one snack a day and then you know, all of a sudden in the 90s, the recommendation was to have multiple snacks a day. And so uh, Dr. Kevin Hall, who's a researcher at the National Institute for Health in the U.S., uh, looked at some of the data on, on household spending on snacks. And since the 1970s, this is four or five decades, and it contributes to about an extra 425 calories per day in the general population, which by itself is enough to explain the obesity epidemic that we're struggling with now, which I mentioned again yeah. Most developed countries, two-thirds of the population, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., are overweight or obese. Um, And so we're struggling now because our food environment contains loads of 
tasty processed snacks that make us want to eat more and they have a lot of calories. They don't make us full. Um, and so that's one where, again, having a snack's not the end of the world, but yeah. finding spaces in your day where you don't need to eat, right? It's not, your body has enough energy on it. You can get there. It's more just, it's become a behavioral thing. And so that's yeah. one where uh, it's an easy win uh, to do that. And of course, the toughest one to change in folks is late night snacking, but that's another story. <laughs> that's a fire for another day. And it's quickly touching on as you mentioned obesity topic. This may be this is this is uh, this is me just getting very curious now. You said something is just lit up some things in my head. Was the obesity? I, I was listening to I don't know if it was on a podcast or or reading somewhere, and they said that I don't remember how long, but let's say forty years for example, uh, forty years ago, the spending on food in for example the U.S. was actually higher, but the amount of spending on medicine was lower. But now you f- find a very significant flip where people are spending a lot more on medicine and because of and then a lot less on food because food a dollar for can find a you can get a whole meal for two dollars two pounds five pounds you can get so spending on food is significantly cheaper but medicine and long-term illnesses are significantly higher do you is that something is that correct or they sound right well it's i mean trouble with chronic diseases is that if you're a company that sells medications and you have someone with a chronic disease, you've got a customer for life, right? So if you have type two diabetes, when you're 25, I'm going to sell you medication until you're 80. Right. And so there's a bit of a conflict of interest in the sense of, and we see this more pronounced in, in places like the U S where there's, you know, totally private healthcare system that, uh, you know, is meant to have competition, but doesn't appear to because, you know, drugs in the U S cost more than they do in Canada. Right, and we have a national healthcare system like over here in the UK. Um, simple procedures cost three, four, five times as much, uh, but all this is being covered by insurance companies. And so, I mean, long story short is that if you can support your health by what you eat and how you move and lifestyle factors, and not be on medications, you know, if you need medications for periods, absolutely, you know, use those medications. But if you can keep your health to a point where you're off of those medications, that's a pretty darn good predictor of healthy aging and wellness. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, see, that, that, that's one of the things. These are, these are the type of things that just generally interest me and uh, just get me a lot of curious. And uh, I, won't get, I won't put my conspiracy theorist hat and <laughs> go, go down that rabbit hole. Save that one for another day. <laughs> yeah, save that one for another day. But no, that was uh, great. So if you're listening, we're going to do a quick part two, which we'll talk about other topics but you have to obviously to hear the parts you have to make sure it's tuning for next week so we'll leave it there for now and then we'll hop on in a bit if you enjoyed this episode of the Excel podcast make sure to subscribe so you know when we drop our next episode and leave a review if you're on apple podcast or stitcher also, if you have any questions about any of the things we discussed in these episodes or have a future episode recommendation, something you want us to talk about, feel free to send me a message at Rook's Health on all social media platforms. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can just leave a comment and I will look at them. So till next week on the Rook's Health Podcast. <laughs>